Well, Father, we are just so thankful for your son who comes to us as a friend and a brother and a companion. We're so thankful that the sent Jesus sent his spirit to empower us and enliven us and protect us and to comfort us. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come into each room, to each place where church is being watched, where we gather while scattered. Would you speak to us afresh this morning through your word as we step into a new year together, as we step into the unknown together? Would you come, Holy Spirit, would you lead us? And really, Jesus, that's our prayer for our whole year, that this year you would lead us, that you would lead us as we grow increasingly more hungry after you as we're formed in a spiritual family, as we join with you, Jesus, in the renewal of all things, would you lead us, this spiritual family, this year, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8. I'm going to get my table. Acts chapter 8. We are back in the book of Acts, and I'm really glad to be with you for that. I was thinking the other day about the first time that I went back to my high school after I was married. Steph and I moved back to the area in 2013, and oh, I don't know, a couple years after that, there was some sort of an event that had us back at my high school, and I remember being so struck by how this place felt so familiar and so alien and foreign at the very same time. I mean, it had the exact same smell that I remembered it having. It had the exact, like, shade of yellowy white light, and I remember showing Steph, oh, this was my locker in that grade, this was my locker in that grade, and And yet as I walked around this building, I remember thinking, was the choir room hallway really that long? Was the cafeteria really this small? It felt strange to be in a place that was familiar and entirely foreign. And that feeling of familiarity mixed with the alien and the strange is exactly how the early church feels as we jump in here at Acts chapter 8. In Acts 8, the church is thrust into the unknown and yet the familiar. And and as we'll see in a moment, what, what happened was the persecution and opposition in Jerusalem became so intense that many, if not most of the early Christians, left the city and scattered around the countryside of Judea and Samaria. For many of these people, these regions would be familiar to them, familiar to them as Boardman or Southington or Aurora or Cleveland is to some of us. But it, it, even though they're in a familiar place, they have this deep realization that they're just not in Kansas anymore. And wherever the early Christians go, they preach the gospel, and to their surprise, all sorts of people, unexpected people, respond in faith. There's the despised Samaritans, an exotic Ethiopian eunuch, a terrorist, even the hated Gentiles respond in faith and become part of Jesus' covenant family. And along the way, new converts turn out to be wolves in sheep's clothing, and the church finds that the Holy Spirit can lead in ever more surprising ways. In Acts chapter 8 through 10, we find the early church on the verge of the unknown. 
even as they are in the midst of the familiar. The early Christians in this chapter, we are going to find, in chapters 8 through 10, we're going to find that they are good companions in our own cultural moment. Because on the one hand, very little has changed for us, but on the other hand, just about everything is different. We've talked plenty about how this pandemic, the worst in 100 years, and the civil unrest, the worst in 50 years, the most anxious election season in living memory, has been used by God to wake us and shake us and stir in us a hunger for himself. But what we haven't talked too much about is how these cultural events are ultimately going to lead to tectonic shifts in our culture. The aftershock of these effects, we will be feeling them and they'll be reshaping our culture with a force unlike anything we've seen since World War II. And the reality is our mission field has changed in ways that we can't predict, in the ways that we can't fully understand. But what we know for sure is there is no going back to 2019. Acts chapter 8 through 10, we're calling this part of the book of Acts series Into the Unknown. It invites us to look with new eyes at our missional context. It invites us to look at our neighborhoods and our networks of relationships with fresh eyes to ask God to reveal what he sees about our community. We may think that we are experts in reaching our region, but we're not. Because all of these tectonic shifts had led to a certain thing that we need the Lord's help to understand. And really, as we turn to Acts chapter 8 through 10, we're going to find companions to help us step into this familiar but different mission field of ours. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and look with me at Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 4. But if your memory is a little foggy from eating too many Christmas cookies, or you're just tuning in, I thought it might be helpful to remind us all of what's been happening to this point. Uh, The book of Acts, it's written by Luke. He's one of Jesus's first followers. He's a medical doctor. It's the sequel to his gospel, his biography of the life of Jesus. And for Luke, uh, Jesus hasn't stopped moving. He hasn't stopped working. But through his Holy Spirit, who enlivens his people, Jesus is still up and at him. He's still reconciling the world to himself. He's still making all things new, and he's doing it through this group of people, a spiritual family that are called a church that starts in Jerusalem, and Jesus promises that they will eventually leave Jerusalem, head to the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria, and then take that gospel to the ends of the earth that they will be unhindered as they proclaim this gospel all over the place and everywhere they go. So they're there in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit falls on them. They are set apart as God's people. They are set apart as his dwelling place. And that becomes a problem because they're the new temple, but there was already a temple. And the guardians of that old temple, those who made their livelihoods, uh, who found power and prestige by being attached to the old temple, this creates a problem for them, a conflict between the old temple and the new temple, the people of Jesus and the people of the old covenant. And this tension reaches a boiling point in Acts chapter 7 when a man named Stephen, after performing many miraculous signs and wonders, he is stoned to death. And this sets off a wave of persecution so intense that, like we said, many, if not most, of the Christians in Jerusalem leave the city. But here's what's so important about that. God always wraps up the very worst of what happens to us and to his purposes and his plan. And so Jesus promised they would take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and now this wave of persecution that has scattered them across the countryside, it is doing just that. Acts 8 verse 4 says that the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. 
And Philip, for example, he went to the city of Samaria and told the people that up there about the Messiah. So they're preaching everywhere, and we zoom in on a guy named Philip. We're introduced, or actually reintroduced, to Philip. Philip was uh, chosen in Acts chapter 6 to be a deacon, one of the seven servants in charge of the daily distribution of food for widows. Philip is a Hellenistic Jew. What that means is that he is ethnically Jewish, but he has lived outside the Jewish homeland of Israel for some time. So he speaks Greek. He's well-versed in cross-cultural experiences. And that means every moment of his life has prepared him for right about now. What happens? That Philip goes to the city of Samaria and the people tells the people there about the Messiah. We need to stop and talk about Samaria for a second because there has been a divide, a cleft, a disdain between Jews and Samaritans for centuries. Samaritans and Jews, they share a common Jewish ancestry, but when many Jews were carted off to Babylon in the exile uh, there toward the end of the Old Testament story, some Jews stayed in the land, intermarried with Gentiles, watered down not only their blood, but watered down also their doctrine. And so now there's this theological divide that goes much deeper. This isn't just religious arguing. This is essentially racial, ethnic bias and suspicion. I mean, at this point, Jews have such a bad taste in their mouth about Samaritans that they will only walk through Samaria if they absolutely must. Jews have plenty of off-color jokes about how Samaritans drive or how they spend their money or how they go about their lives, and yet it is to these Samaritans that Philip, a Jew, is sent. It is to the Samaritans that Philip, a Jew, preaches. It is the Samaritans who listen intently to Philip's message, who look closely at the signs and wonders he performs. They're not just passively watching. They're not just present while Philip is performing these signs and wonders and just like looking at their phones. They are observing carefully what is going on. They are tuned in to what is happening. And it is the Samaritans who thus find great joy in receiving the message. Acts 8 verse 12 says, now the people believed Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, and as a result, many men and women were baptized. Philip baptizes Samaritan after Samaritan, and as Samaritans praise and worship and become part of Jesus' family, I can't help but wonder if Philip hears the words of Jesus echoing in his head, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Now living among these Samaritans, is a man named Simon. We meet him in verse 9. Luke says, A man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the great one, the power of God. They listened closely to him, to Simon, because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. Simon is a sorcerer. The Samaritans believe he has the power of God. The reality is that he has a measure of spiritual authority, a measure of spiritual power, not through a covenant with Yahweh, but through a covenant with the enemy. And to be clear, Simon is not just performing magic tricks. He's not just pulling rabbits out of his hats and pulling out the card out of the pile that you guessed. Simon, what 
Luke is going to great lengths to tell us about is that Simon is a sorcerer, that he has astounded people with his magic, that he is called as one that has the power of God. He's able to do some stuff. When, when I was in Africa, in high school, I w- went on a two-week trip to Burkina Faso. We met a missionary named Rollo Royal. It is a name that I have never, ever in my entire life been able to forget. Uh, Rollo told us a story that he was living in one town, but was working with a village way out in the bush. And in Africa language, that means way out in the middle of nowhere. And so to get there, he would drive from the town out to the bush. And on that drive, he would come to a Y intersection in the road. And in the middle of, and, and on that Y, there was a hut. And in that hut lived a witch doctor who was rumored in that region to be very, very powerful. And one day as he's driving by, he's been doing this for a few weeks now, he's driving by and uh, the witch doctor throws himself in front of the car and he frantically begged Rollo for help saying, tell me, tell me what God you worship because my gods have stopped speaking to me. I mean, the power of the Holy Spirit just being near this guy was enough to silence the demonic forces from which he received his power. And the reason I tell you that story is this is not like one of those, oh, look at that interesting thing the Bible says then. This is just something that's normal. This is something about the way that the world is. Simon isn't just a card trick magician. Through a spiritual authority from a covenant with the enemy, he is able to do things. Yet as Philip preaches and the Samaritans come to faith, something stirs in Simon. So verse 13 says, then Simon himself believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went. And he was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip performed. So word of the revival among the Samaritans reaches Jerusalem. And Peter and John come to Samaria to see what all the fuss is about. Look with me at chapter 8, verse 14. It says, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. And as soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on these believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. Peter and John come to Samaria for for two reasons. One is a personal thing for John, and the other is a more corporate theological reality. John comes to Samaria on a journey of personal repentance. In Luke 9, Jesus is preaching the gospel. They encounter some Samaritans, and the Samaritans are unkind to Jesus. They do not receive his message. They oppose him. And James and John are brothers. Their nicknames are the Sons of Thunder. Uh, They look at Jesus and say, well, how about we go ahead and just call fire down on them? Okay, Uh, that's cute. That's nice. Jesus stops them from doing that. But in that moment, it's not just... John and James' anger that's being showed, it's their bias against Samaritans. And of all the people for the Spirit to send up to Samaria, for the apostles to identify, they send John. They send John in what has to be a personal journey of repentance as he goes to these people that he has been trained to hate, that he has been trained to dislike, that he has been trained to leave outside of the culture, he is now going to them to see the revival that is taking place on. He's going to them to find out that they are part of his covenant family. And so they go and, and they get there and, and the text says that they laid hands on the Samaritans and that they received the Holy Spirit. 
When we look at the book of Acts, especially in these next couple chapters, as different people groups become part of the covenant family, the Holy Spirit doesn't really do the same thing twice. So in Acts chapter 2, they were just all gathered together. They already believed in Jesus. Then they, the Holy Spirit fell. Other people in the book of Acts, the minute they put their faith in Jesus, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a few times when the apostles come and, and lay hands on these people, and then they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And what we can't do out of the book of Acts is build a theology where we need a hired holy man to come and lay hands on us and be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Um, we, we don't build a theology of apostolic succession out of this. Here's, here's what's really happening in this moment. As, as Peter and John go and they lay hands on these new believers, I first of all can't help but wonder if John and Peter's hands shook as they reached out to touch them. There's this story from the Azusa Street Revival, which took place in the 1920s, in LA, and it was led by a son of illiterate slaves. His name was Philip Seymour. And it was one of the most multi-ethnic environments of its time. It's really one of the most multi-ethnic uh, men and women, black, white, Native American, Hispanic, uh, people all together in leadership of this, this movement. And this white pastor from out east came to be filled with the Holy Spirit at this event. And when he went up to the upstairs prayer room to be prayed for, that's where you would be prayed for to receive the Holy Spirit, to have a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. He refused to participate anymore because he wouldn't let a black man lay his hands on him. I can't help but wonder if there's a little bit of this dynamic here. That as Peter and John go and lay these hands on, what's, what's happening is Peter and John have been sent by the Holy Spirit through the apostles still living in Jerusalem to demonstrate to the Samaritans that they are included in the covenant family. He's, they've gone the extra mile to demonstrate to the Samaritans that you, outcasts as you have been, are now full members of the covenant family. And I don't think Peter and John go because uh, the Samaritans need to know that. I think Peter and John go because all of the Jewish believers need to know that. This is as much, if not more, for the believers in Jerusalem than it is for the Samaritans. So Peter and John lay hands on these Samaritans. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And you know in cartoons, when like Scrooge McDuck sees money and his eyes turn to like dollar signs, this is kind of what happens to Simon. Uh, like he starts to drool, Simon the magician. Look at verse 18 of chapter 8. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given, when the apostles laid their hands on the people, he offered them money to buy his power. Let, them have, let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, we learn that Simon's conversion had nothing to do with Jesus. In that moment, we learn that Simon's conversion was far from genuine because Jesus wasn't interested in Jesus for Jesus' sake. Simon was interested in what Jesus could give him. He was looking for power. And so Peter responds, I like how the Phillips translation renders Jesus' response, or excuse me, Peter's response. The Phillips translation, this is how it says, forgive me if your kids are listening, to hell with you and your money, is what he says. You know, the Bible, so cuddly and sweet. And, and in this moment, I'm reminded that while I have not been a pastor long, I can think of three or four moments in my journey of pastoring and, and leading, leading churches where someone like appeared out of nowhere and they come in and they come in hot 
and they're asking me out to coffee and inviting us to dinner and giving me gift cards and giving me gifts and they're the first people to get up when I'm done preaching and give me a hug and tell me how good my sermon was and uh, I end up doing families for funerals for their families and they're meeting me in my office and they're telling me, you know, I've been mistreated by this kind of pastor and that kind of pastor, but you're not like them. You're different and I love you so much and you're just the best thing that ever happened and I tell everybody around about you and then they start coming early and setting up and they stay late and they tear down and start to get volunteering in all of these other areas and then one day, one day, boom, they are gone like the wind. And people look at me and go, well, where did that person go? Sometimes, sometimes I've had a conversation that nobody else knew about, offering a word of challenge, pushing back a little bit. Sometimes nothing happened, and all they figured out in either case was that there was no power to be gained here. There's no power to be gained here. When I went to church planting boot camp to help start Regen, they, they told us this was going to happen, and I was like, there's no way. That's the wildest thing I've heard about. It's happened. As long as there is a church as long as the people of Jesus is here, as long as the gospel is preached, there will be those who seek out the Jesus movement, who seek out Jesus. Not because it's a path to holiness or to life and life abundant or participation in the kingdom, but they will do it because it is a path to power and influence. The church of Jesus is and has always been and always will have its fair share of Simons who simply want to use Jesus for their own selfish gain, to accrue their own influence, to help establish them in their power, or even to harm others. And you can find them in Washington, you can find them in local government, you can find them in PTA meetings, you can find them around family dinner tables, and you can even find them on church boards. People who use the name of Jesus not to glorify Jesus, but to accrue power from themselves. Acts 8.25 says, After testifying and preaching the word of God, the word of the Lord in Samaria, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem. They returned to Jerusalem because they've got to report back to the group something significant has happened. What we thought was true is not true anymore. These people are now radically included in the covenant. And they stopped in many Samaritan villages along the way to preach the good news. By the time we get to Acts chapter 9, the author, Luke takes it for granted. Luke takes it for granted that the church is alive and well and thriving in Samaria just one chapter later. But as we close our time together, here's what I want to focus on. I want to focus on why Peter and John go to Samaria. Because here's the reality. They could have sent someone else. The Bible teaches a model of empowering other leaders. In fact, wait a minute. They did send somebody else. They sent Philip, who was full of the Holy Spirit in his own right, who was a leader in the early church in his own right. Why was their presence needed? I want to repeat this again. Peter and John don't go to Samaria so that the new believers can receive the Holy Spirit from the really holy guys. See, here's what happens. A lot of people think the moment that I became a pastor or if you meet a missionary or, 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 or maybe just a super spiritual person, you think they've got this red phone on their desk. They've got this line directly to God. Listen, you and I have different callings, but we have the same access to God. 
you and I have different callings, but we have the same access to God. You don't need me to come in to bring the extra juju. You have the same access to the Father. And, and, and so what's not happening here is a theology of apostolic succession. I want to be careful about how we build theologies of subsequent fillings of the Holy Spirit. It just seems to me that Paul says, do not be drunk on wine, but go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. It seems like that can happen multiple times in your life. But in this case, the Holy Spirit comes when John and Peter lay hands on Samaritans as a sign and symbol of the Samaritans' inclusion in the covenant family. That's why they go. They want a visible, public demonstration of the inclusion of Samaritans in Jesus' covenant family. Listen, the Samaritans are outcasts. Socially, economically, culturally, they have been the target of bias, dare I say, systemic bias from Jews for centuries. Listen, if we're going to take sin seriously, we're going to believe that, that sin is internal, that it's interpersonal, and that it's institutional. That's just how sin works. As long as human beings that are broken are coming together to build institutions, that institution is going to be broken. And one of the most radical things that Jesus does in his entire life of ministry is he casts a Samaritan as the hero in one of his stories. A man lies bloodied and beaten and halfway to death on the side of the road, and righteous Jew after righteous Jew walks on, leaving a lowly Samaritan to save the day. And if Jesus had been telling that story, that story in the Jim Crow South, it would have been the son of slaves who walked by and saved the day while white doctors and law enforcement walked on by. And if Jesus had been telling that story in the days after 9-11, it would have been a member of the Iraqi Republican Guard who came and saved the guy. And if Jesus was telling that story in 2020, it would be an illegal immigrant or refugee saving the day while the innkeeper wants to see his papers to make sure he can really pay. See, John and Peter go to Samaria as both an act of personal repentance, but also a visible and unforgettable sign that the Samaritans are really included in Jesus' covenant family. Oh, that group of people that's been excluded from your walls and your halls for that long, we're going to go the extra mile, the gospel says, to make sure that they know they are radically included in this family. They go the extra mile. They are remarkably inconvenienced. They are made unbelievably uncomfortable so that everyone, the Samaritans, and even more importantly, the people back in Jerusalem will know that the Samaritans belong to the covenant family of God because anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved. For in Jesus there is no Jew or Greek or Gentile or slave or free or man or female. All are one in Christ Jesus. Which means this, when we go out on mission, we are called to go the extra mile to radically inconvenience ourselves, to make ourselves incredibly uncomfortable, to make sure the people we are trying to reach know that we are really trying to reach them, that they are really a part of what we're trying to do. Back in 2014, we set out to start a faith community for unchurched and dechurched young adults, one of our community's biggest unreached people groups. Young adults, people under 35, make up less than 20% of churches in our area, but they make up a more significant portion of our population. So we started this new community, and everybody over 35 got awkward with me. As if by saying, we're going to be intentional about reaching this unreached people group made, made us say that you're second-class citizens and we don't want you. People acted like I had bodyguards at the door to bounce anybody that was over 35. 
But here's the funny thing is we were intentional about going the extra mile to reach the people that we want to reach, which are under unchurched, de-churched people under 35. As we've been intentional about trying to reach them, a couple of things have happened. First, we've reached the people that we set out to reach. The second thing is we reached people who want to reach the people we want to reach, which is why our community is intergenerational because people that are, aren't under 35 that are in the room are saying, hey, this is really important. And you know what else happened, by the way? The people that didn't want to reach the people we want to reach left. I've been told that I speak too frankly and that I dress too casually. But I will go the extra mile to make a person who doesn't know Jesus, who feels like church is stuffy and boring, feel comfortable. If they see me wearing jeans and feel like that's a place that I can go, then I'm going to do it. Friends, here's the reality. And I, and I think, by the way, there might be something really important to me kind of articulating this at the beginning of the year. I don't know why. Um, I will do anything short of sin to reach a new person. By the way, that does not mean changing our theology. That does not mean watering down the gospel. I think I have a proven track record of not doing that. Um, maybe being a little too strong in the other direction, some might say. I will do anything short of sin to help one person come to know Jesus. So when I say, as I have said historically, the most important person in the room is the person that's not here yet, I've been shouted down before. Well, not shouted down. I've been told, like, isn't there? And I'm saying I'm going to inconvenience everybody in the room to make sure that we're really clear on the people that we are trying to reach. And if that makes you uncomfortable, and if that feels inconvenient, the only thing that I know to tell you is that to follow the way of Jesus and to join him on mission and to reach people that God cares about, which are lost people, people that are without God and without hope in this world, that means we're going to live a life of functional inconvenience. I just came across this term this week. I was so excited about it. This new trend in office design like office space design, is now called functional inconvenience. And so everybody feels like it would be really convenient in an office to have the water cooler on the first floor. So we put it on the second floor so that as people walk up to the second floor on the stairs, not the elevator, but on the stairs, they intentionally rub shoulders with people that they wouldn't normally rub shoulders with. They put the bathroom down this one hallway in the corner, and the CEO and the secretary and everybody in between, they don't get their own bathrooms. And so on their way to the bathroom, you're bumping into people that you don't normally bump into. It's called functional inconvenience. And I don't know how to break it to you other than to tell you to reach lost people in this new mission field that we're about to step into in 2021 and beyond. To reach lost people will mean devoting our lives to functional inconvenience. And so the fundamental question is this, how are you inconveniencing yourself for the sake of lost people? How are you making yourself uncomfortable to reach the people that Jesus has called you to reach? I mean, the first inconvenience might simply be the recognition that your heart is cold toward lost people. The first inconvenience is realizing that the way that you have built your theology in some sort of 21st century progressive blend of I'm okay, you're okay, everybody's truth is everybody's truth, 
means that I actually have to get really clear about Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The first inconvenience might be being reminded that church isn't about you, about your preferences, or about your desires. The first inconvenience might be realizing that the pace of your life leaves no room for lost people. The first inconvenience might be realizing that you're going to have to speak the gospel. The first inconvenience might be realizing that I need to pray for this person like I have never prayed before, that they would be shaken loose from the bounds of hell. The first inconvenience might be realizing that you have a bias against a people group. Republicans, Democrats, old people, young people, white people, black people. That you have a bias you need to repent of. But to follow in the way of Jesus is to wrap our lives around his life, a life of functional inconvenience. This isn't just a neat idea. This is the very essence of who God is. What, what does Philippians 2 say? That we must have the same mind that Jesus had, who, though he was God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be clung to. Instead, he gave up his rights. He took on the form of a slave and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross, that everyone who believes in him, right, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This isn't a nifty little idea. This is essential to the character and person and activity of God, and he invites us into that functional convenience because Tim Keller wisely says, if we learn nothing else at Christmas, it mean, it, we learn that God will go to infinite lengths to get to you. So I'm going to pray, and I'll lead us a little bit more in some response time here, but let's do that. Father, we recognize that you inconvenienced yourself after a certain way of thinking, I suppose, to come and get us, and that you call us to a similar level of inconvenience. And so, God, I pray that this morning you would give us new eyes to see our networks and our neighborhoods, and that you would reveal to us the people there that you've planted us intentionally to befriend and reach. God, I pray that you would rise to our heart those places that we have sought convenience and comfort. And Lord Jesus, today we just lay those down. We just lay those down. So that we can take on the unhurried, more loving pace that you lead us in. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we want to be people, we want to be wise builders, Jesus calls them. We want to be people who hear God and respond, right? That's how we be wise builders. That's how we become fruitful in the spiritual life. And so my first question today is, um, how is God getting your attention? If, if you were to have a scale, and one would be totally and utterly and constantly inconvenienced and, and uncomfortable, and 10 is totally, all the time, comfortable and convenienced. Where are you? How's God get your attention with that? What is the convenience that God is asking you to lay down in the new year so that there's more room in your life for lost people? 
and maybe is there just simply an invitation to repent of a heart that is disinterested and cold toward the lost? I'm going to invite you to take just a couple of minutes and think through that, and then Julia will lead us as we close in a song that I think will help us kind of put prayer into action. So let's do that together. Jesus said, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he has found it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. My friends, may you have fresh eyes to see this mission field that we've been called to. May you be inconvenienced for the sake of the lost. I love you so much. It's been so good to be with you. See you soon.